from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. This episode of the Cry Havoc Podcast was made possible by a gift from Jenny Gear. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. Today around the table we have... Jenny Curlin, I'm an actor. Jen Reichert, I'm a writer. Caitlin Wilcox, I'm an actor, writer, and director. Jennifer Kerfman, I'm an actor and a director. And Kit Lavoy, I'm a writer and a director. Today, for our final episode in our fifth season, we're going to be talking about working in a festival setting. Much of the work that actors, writers, and directors do early in their career is in the setting of a theater festival. It's also something that continues later into their career, but it is something that is a very prominent part of many people's early careers. When we're talking about theater festivals for this purpose, we're talking about those situations in which there is a group of discrete productions with discrete teams that are coming together to present their work in some sort of combined setting. That can be a setting where it is an evening of one acts, where it is a group of different people each bringing uh, one of the one acts of the evening, or it can be a setting where there are multiple full-length plays being done over different times in the same location, or situations where there are multiple plays being done in multiple settings over a wider area, such as the fringe festivals that many cities have. Festivals create a setting of pooled resources that make it possible for some people to produce work that they might not otherwise be able to produce. That said, because it's a situation where there are multiple unrelated teams of people, all of whom have to coordinate their efforts in order to be part of the same larger event, there are specific challenges that are very real, that exist only in a festival setting. Today what we'll be talking about is our experience working in festivals, the challenges that come along with working in that setting, and the strategies and best practices for getting the most out of a festival production. We have done a two-part episode in the past about producing your own work, and we're going to do our best to not cover all of the same uh, territory that we covered in that. Uh, There will be some overlap, but we do definitely recommend if you are listening to this and planning on uh, producing something in a festival, that you also listen to that for some of the broader thoughts about producing a play in any setting. Most of what we're going to be talking about today is the specific challenges and opportunities that come along with a festival. Before we start, uh, let's just talk a little bit quickly about what sorts of festivals we all have worked in. I actually know a few of you guys uh, just finished this week runs of shows in uh, the New York Fringe Festival. Um, Yeah, I just finished a run of my one-woman show, The Pawn Broker, in the New York Fringe, um, where I was the actor and the writer in that production. And I've also directed for some other festivals around the city. And I directed Caitlin's one-woman show in the Fringe that we just closed, and I've also directed for a couple of other festivals. And I actually just closed last night a show in the New York Fringe as an actor, and I've worked in that festival before as a stage manager and at a couple of other festivals around the city, primarily as a stage manager and then again as an associate director uh, for the Sam French Festival. Yeah, I've done some festivals around the city, uh, primarily as a writer and then also as a producer. 
when I was looking back uh, in preparation for for doing this uh, podcast, I actually realized and counted that out of the first 35 shows that I did out of school, 22 of them were in festivals. Um, and it really is something that, again, it gave me such a great opportunity to do my work and try my work. But it also is something that over the course of those 22, I got much better at being in a festival, which is sort of a discreet uh, skill unto itself. But it actually is something that it's as, as a uh, director, you know, I've, I've directed a lot in festivals, but festivals are also a really great way for writers to get their work done and especially to get their one acts done and things like that, uh, which is, again, a great way to get yourself out there, get yourself seen and to make relationships with theaters. So, um, you know, I have worked in the Samuel French annual new play festival at the Fringe. I uh, had a show in the uh, New York Musical Theater Festival a few uh, years ago. But it really was such an important part of my early career. And candidly, a couple of the really most significant productions I've had in my mid-career have been in festivals like the New York Musical Theater Festival. So let's talk a bit about deciding to do your work in a festival setting. What are the considerations that go into deciding that you want to submit a project to be done in a festival, which is usually the way that it works? is that you have a specific project that you're pitching to the festival to be included. One of the primary reasons to be a part of a festival, aside from if there is a particular prestige to being in a festival, because some festivals are prestigious, and so to be included in them would be an advancement for your piece or your career as an actor or a director. Deciding to be a be in a festival production or participate in a festival production is about a is about shifting the balance between some producing something yourself into the hands of somebody else so that some of the overhead and planning gets taken on by an overarching producing organization and you can just focus more on the creative part of your specific work without all it just takes up some of the upper levels of management of a production off of your hands so that you can just focus on your own piece which also means that you don't have as much control over this the setting, but it's kind of that balance. If you don't have an opportunity to produce your own work, letting somebody else take on some of those jobs of producing in exchange for whatever financial things, you know, that's one of the reasons to participate in a festival, especially early in your career when you might not be able to afford to produce your own work or you don't have the opportunities that you're looking for. And that idea of the financial arrangement that you were talking about is, I think, a very important thing to consider, uh, both in terms of whether to sign up for a festival and also how you want to approach it. Because there are some festivals where you split the box office with the house. There are some festivals where the house gets all of the box office and essentially your benefit is the opportunity to have the space to perform the show in and the advertising that the the producer provides. Um, and there are actually some festivals that you have to pay to be a part of. And those are all models that work for different reasons and different circumstances, but it is something to look into when you're considering where to submit your work to be done. I think research is important too. Like I think most festivals have some sort of um, either theme or track record that you can look up in advance and really see if if it's 
something you have a piece that would be a good match for. And I think that goes that goes into several categories in terms of like the um, there are some festivals that like are very specific. They are like they they do plays that talk about environmentalism or something like that. Mm-hmm. But there are, then there are, are festivals. So, you know, you'd obviously want to see very carefully if you had a project that was a match for that. Then some festivals have a very broad spectrum in terms of theme, but they have a specific um, reputation. So I think doing research is important in any case, but especially for something like this, just um, seeing which festivals your pieces would be a a specific good match for. That's also going to help you get into those festivals. You know, you wouldn't want to just blindly submit anything. And if you know people who have participated in the festival before, it's good to talk to multiple people, uh, you know, not just get one person's. If you have one person's opinion, that's good. But if you have uh, several people who you can talk to to get different perspectives on what it's like to participate in the festival, you can know if it's something that might be a good match for you. And I think it's, we talk about this often, but I think what's critical about it is to really figure out what your goals are for joining a festival, for applying to a festival, to uh, producing in a festival. Because, you know, if you're if you're really looking for a festival that has some some prestige, you might be able to take advantage of the the press that that festival gets. If that's the goal for your production, that would be a very good reason to to try to get into that particular festival. But if you're you know if you're looking for you might be able to find a festival that focuses more on the development of new work and, and to put a new play in at, a, at an earlier stage of its development to get it in front of an audience and to give it a chance to see, you know, what, what its next steps might need to be as a, as a play. But I think really taking stock of not only what you want to get out of uh, the production, but also what you, how it fits in with what you want to get out of that particular festival is critical. Yeah, because actually, specifically with my one-woman show, The Pawnbroker, I had done it in a festival three years ago. Um, But that was a festival where every show got one performance, and that was it. So a festival like that is not necessarily the best type of festival if you're looking to generate reviews for your show or something like that. But it was a great festival to get the show up on its feet and see what it was like in front of an audience. And so then this year... We were ready to do it at the Fringe Festival, which is a better platform to try to get reviews, try to get build an audience for the show, because you get at least five performances. So stuff like that are things to consider about what stage of development is your piece in and what festival is a good match for that. And something that's different from festival to festival is how involved the overarching producing organization is in assisting you with your production, uh, which can range from giving you a small budget and providing you with a producer and a production staff to you show up with everything in a truck and you are responsible for following all the rules and getting everything done and providing all the money and everything. So like the big bonus of a festival, especially in New York City, is the performance venue is provided to you. And that can be quite expensive here. So it is a big bonus of doing something in a festival that you don't have to pay for that part, but you probably still also have to budget for rehearsal space, hiring your team, paying your actors if you're doing that, um, depending on arranging all your contracts if there are unions involved. And, you know, different different festivals are 
union and non-union. And so it's you still have all the things that you have to do as a producer in general in a festival, but you could look into when you're applying to festivals, which ones, you know, what you'll be expected to bring to the table as a producer. And that is something, again, we talk about a lot of those details in the Producing Your Own Work podcast. Um, uh, but it is really something that is just an important thing, I think, to look into, is that idea of what parts of the process and the producing apparatus is covered by the festival you're applying to, what is not covered by the festival you're applying to, and how much of the proceeds of the show does the producer get and do you get. That That's just an important sort of cost-benefit analysis to decide whether or not it's worth uh, bringing your show in uh, or, or submitting your show for that festival, and is going to impact your planning for doing the show. Very, very very rarely is a festival show something that your producing organization or you yourself as the producer of an individual show is going to make money off of. It is actually much more likely to be one of those settings where you are investing money in your career by creating a show um, that's happening in the festival. But there's a lot of ways, again, that rather than uh, just putting up your show independently, you're able to draft off of the larger festival in a number of ways, and it depends on the festival, but some of it can be about the resources. Again, renting a theater is very expensive, and if you don't have to do that, that is a, a, a great help and might make it possible for you to produce something that you could not otherwise produce. And as you were saying, Caitlin, there are certain festivals in any city that people in the community are more broadly aware of and that reviewers are prepared to come to. I mean, The Fringe, which you guys just wrapped up, that is something that the theater community in New York City is sort of very aware of. They spend much of August going to different theaters to see different people do shows in the festival. And a number of you know, well-reputed reviewing organizations make it a point to review a selection or a few of them, all of the shows in that festival, most of which are being done at a production level that would not get the attention of those publications or websites if they were being produced outside of the context of the festival. So again, that's all cost-benefit uh, consideration. That said, there also are festivals of things that are like a festival, an independent one-act festival, that might be a great opportunity to have some of the weight of gathering resources off of your shoulders. And yet what it means is you're doing your one-act in a night of five other one-acts that you have no control over, and therefore it might not be a great setting to invite industry to come and see your work because you have to ask them to sit through four other plays that you have no way of vouching for. And certainly in those settings, it is relatively rare that reviewers will come to see those sorts of shows. So again, it's a matter of really figuring out what do I want for my piece, for the experience, for the production, and what festival, if any, is the appropriate place to try to do those things. Other financial things to keep in mind or think about when you're trying to decide about festivals is that um, some festivals have a house requirement and that you have to guarantee a certain number of seats. And if that many people don't show up, you have to pay for them. <laughs> so that's something to think about. Um, some festivals also have rights requirements where if you agree to do the festival, 
you also agree to a certain, usually it's a certain time frame commitment of if this show takes off within two years of the festival, then you agree to give the festival a certain percentage of that income or revenue that you get from the show. And that is something that is um, a consideration and is, I think, a, I think a fairly reasonable thing for them to ask, depending on what amount they're asking for from the show. But if they are providing the resources for you to have a showcase for your piece um, that would not otherwise be seen by the producers that then pick it up and move it someplace else, um, you know, that, that the idea that, um, you know, that's just something that you as the owner of the property, again, need to make the cost-benefit analysis of is that a, a trade-off that seems fair to you. So let's say you have decided that you want to do a festival. You've identified the festival or festivals that you plan to apply to. Let's talk a bit about the application process and, and, and what's important to do. There are generally application processes for these that they ask for different festivals, ask for different kinds of material, might ask for an essay, a statement of purpose, might uh, want to read the script, might not want to read the script, might want uh, video of the performance if it exists. But given the fact that each festival has different requirements, do you guys have any general thoughts about um, applications? Well, I think as a writer, generally when I'm applying to a festival, it's with the piece that I'm trying to to uh, get into the festival. So it's making sure that my play is in the best form that it can be for being accepted to the festival. And that includes, you know, proper submission of plays and the format that they ask for, electronic or by mail, meeting the deadline, that kind of thing. So that's generally, as a writer, how I would apply to a festival. I know as a producer that there are usually more things that can be required, but aren't necessarily for like a lot of festivals, it is just the work itself. And then I think the next level would be, tell me who your director is and do you have a cast? And then it get, goes up from there. And I think the the letter of application or the, the way that you introduce yourself to the festival, it's really important to be able to demonstrate not only that you know what the work is that you're bringing to them, um, but also that you know what they do too. And that you're looking at their mission statement and looking at all of their guidelines and all of their uh, requirements or the kinds of shows they've done in the past. And that you can demonstrate that you see how your production is a match for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and showing interest in their festival as a work that is something that you're interested in being a part of and how you can be good for them as much as they would be good for you. And often, I, th I think many of these festivals really are in the business of trying to help show work that would not otherwise be seen. So it's not only, our show's going to be a success, and so you should pick us because we're going to make you a gajillion dollars, but here's how you can help us. This is what your festival offers that might make a difference to our show and our production. Ironically, that thing is also the very same thing as telling them what you can do for them given the fact that what they are trying to do is support a certain kind of work. Because as you said, myself, having produced theater festivals, they are a monster to manage. People do not choose to put on theater festivals because it's the most fun way of 
doing work. They generally are doing it because there's a certain kind of work that they want to do. So if it is something where they are really about supporting emerging writers, you don't want your essay or your, your application to be all about how I'm this really great writer that everyone thinks is a great writer. What you want to write to them is about the fact that you are trying to find a place where you can have your voice heard and how much you appreciate that these people are providing a platform for that. You know, because it's sort of a, the thing where you want them to read your application and say, oh, that thing that they want, we know how to do that. We have limited resources. We should give it to the people who want to do the thing we know how to help them do. And again, to have done your research and be sure that without pandering on its surface, but that what you are saying you are hoping to get out of this festival is the thing that they are hoping to give people with this festival. And I think, you know, there are, I think this is true with the Fringe and probably with other festivals, is that some are looking for much more finished productions, that they want evidence of uh, previous productions, maybe production photos or production video. And I think even if you don't have it, they will still accept you. But I think it's it shows a level of commitment to a project that that gives them another way to judge the piece and whether it's something that is right for their festival. So even if the application says that there are certain requirements or recommendations don't necessarily count out your production. If you don't have those things, you might be able to make an arrangement with them to still apply without them. Um, so you can, you know, have communication with, with the producing organization and see if they'll, uh, you know, consider your piece if it's at a different level. And I think getting a little bit of carefully selected outside feedback is important too. Because sometimes when you're writing your own application, especially if it involves an essay or a letter, you're often a little too close to the piece or you can get so mired in the minutia of it. It's, it's good to get, I mean, you never want too many cooks in the kitchen, but a couple of people who you really trust who are familiar with the piece or send them the piece to read and then say, this is what I'm considering submitting as my cover letter for this piece. I know we got some really good feedback for our fringe application for Pawnbroker where our first draft of our letter we basically got the feedback was, I don't think this letter matches the tone of the piece. And that was really important for us to hear because it needs to match. That is actually, I think, one of the most important things, I think. And it's something that is never in the instructions. It ne but that idea about show, don't tell, the same way you do it in all of your other writing, you want to do it in your application writing, of that idea that people should get a sense from reading the play. If it's a zingy comedy, your application should be kind of fun to read while not just being a bunch of jokes. If it really is a very serious exploration of the history of oppression in a certain part of the world, you want to be sure that it feels like it has that sort of a heft or a weight to it. And that's an oversimplification. But that idea that candidly, they should get, just from reading your answers to the question, a sense of what the show's going to be like. Not just because you're telling them what it's going to be like, but because they can feel the sensibility of the show and the sensibility of the application. Another thing that uh, I think is important, and I think something we'll get into more deeply in some of the other things we should talk about, is it's critically important to follow the rules of the application. 
so much of what the challenge of working in a festival will be is that festivals have rules. They need to have rules, sometimes seemingly arcane and bizarre and complicated rules. But there are reasons that the producers have those rules when they're managing so many different teams. And it is something that if you cannot put in an application that follows the rules that they lay out, it will be a red flag to any smart festival producer that potentially this is not someone who is going to thrive in a festival setting. So actually, speaking of rules, um, <laughs> let's talk uh, a little bit about the people who make the rules. And those are the festival producers and their representatives. Do you guys have thoughts about best practices for interacting and working with the people who run the festival once you've been accepted? Having been on the other side of producing a festival, it I have a tremendous appreciation for the people who manage these things because as you said, it's not something, a practice you might take up for fun. Um, that they're managing an incredible amount of balls in the air and I don't want to be the person who is the ball that keeps jumping into the middle of things and messing things up. So making myself known to them in a positive way making sure that I, if I have questions, that they're clear, that I'm direct about what I need answers to or information about, and like be quick about it. Like, in and out, this is all I need. I'll come back to you for anything else. Thank you so much. And being a good person who under, who's grateful for the assistance that they get, I think they will respond so positively to someone being professional and direct that they... that that builds your reputation. It builds up your credit in the festival for later. If things go wrong, that you can come back as a person who has a serious concern and that they will address you seriously. But if you start off on the right foot of, of knowing what the rules are and abide, like if they've got deadlines, it, you know, intermediate deadlines, making sure that you meet them, giving them what they ask for, when they ask for it, providing you know anything that they require with good grace and respect for their time, I think is the key to starting that relationship on the right foot to continue throughout the festival. And I think it's really important, something you said, Jen, about um, getting in and out with your questions. I think um, read everything. Try to answer your questions yourself from whatever they've already put together as well as you possibly, possibly can. But especially pay attention to how they want you to communicate with them because they're so busy with all of those balls in the air. And uh, if they want you to communicate only by email or only with a particular person or only by phone on the second Tuesday of the month, whatever it is, follow those rules because that's going to make it so much easier for them to help you as well. Um, and it goes a long, long way if they know that you're trying to do everything the way that they need you to do it. Mm -hmm. e even in the way that you respond, demonstrating that you have read the materials and the rules, that you're aware of them, and that this is outside of the knowledge that they provided to you, which was extensive and wonderful, and this is also the additional piece that I need and not because they failed to provide it or something, but it's just like something that it has occurred and you need to know more about. And to keep your communication with them as simple and straightforward as possible and always thank them at the end of every email. Yeah, always, yeah. And I think it's funny too because 
it seems that the more you follow the rules, the more willing they will be to bend yeah. the rules for mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Like if you've been the person who has turned in everything on time and communicated with them exactly how they've requested and demonstrated that you've read all the material but your question is a little bit outside of it, then, you know, midway through the festival when your set breaks and you need an extra hour in the venue to fix it, they're more likely to give that to you than maybe they would be if you were the person who turned in everything late and called them on the day they said no calls and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, it's something that I have sort of developed as a rule of thumb for myself. And I have worked in probably 70 festivals over the years in one capacity or another. But is really as a rule of thumb is to never ask for an exception to the rules. That said, I think because of that, I have gotten many exceptions to the rules. Because there is a way that you can present an issue that you are having and ask for their advice on how to handle it. And if if you go in with the idea, I mean, I know a, a project I recently worked on where I needed to have a one of the actors sitting in the audience for the show. And so rather than saying, can you please give us a seat for the audience, for this person in the audience for the show, I understood they had very clearly in their rules that there are the director and playwright can have seats. There are no additional comps for any reason. And so instead of saying, can you please do me a favor and give me a comp for this actor, I said, I wrote to him and I said, you know, I, I understand that there can't be comps, but I would like to be sure to reserve a ticket, which I will pay for, for this actor for these nights. Who should I talk to to be sure that I have that ticket for each night? And I think we've been very easy to deal with. And he came back and said, don't worry about it. We'll give you a reservation for her every night. You don't have to pay for it. But I think, honestly, if I had come in and said, can I get a free seat for this actress? The answer would have been, you've read the rules. The answer are, you don't. But it's one of those things that if you lead with, this is the issue I'm having, can you please give me the information I need to do it within the rules? They are much more likely to volunteer to bend the rules. And candidly, in that case, if she hadn't, and this I think is actually an important thing, I signed up for a festival where it said very clearly in the rules that only the playwright and director get comps and then elected to have an actress in the audience. So if that meant that I paid for a seat for that actress in the audience, that was a a budgetary choice I was absolutely welcome to make as the producer of that fest of, of our part of that festival. Um, you know, but it is just that thing again of if you don't ask for exceptions, you're more likely to get exceptions. But even when you don't, you shouldn't ask for exceptions because you agreed to do the festival with these rules. And after you have begun with building the good relationship, you can continue that with other people aside from the main producing organization, other staff members, as you get into the space for uh, tech and performance to, you know, extend that same courtesy that you do to your producer from the festival to uh, PAs or venue managers or, you know, lighting board ops, whoever is part of who has been provided to you by the festival. Every single one of those people should get your gratitude at the end of every rehearsal and tech and load in and every one of those people should get the same, you know, method of communication, which is 
I just need this one thing, this one question, a piece of information. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, good work and go on. Like that it's, it, it makes you such a pleasure to work with because it's in relation to all the other people who may not be following that same mode of communication and, you know, exchange that if you are the one polite person, you will reap the benefits. <laughs> and I think that's really important too, is that as you build your own team of your own production, that you, you choose people who behave that way too. And you require that Yeah. because expressly you, require. Yeah. You can't, you, you don't want to be as an actor working in a festival. You don't want to be the one person from your team who's saying thank you to everybody. You know, if you're producing your show, if you are the writer, you are the director, you are an actor, you should be a part of a team who always comes in and is flexible and a team player and gracious. Um, that's going to go all the way up to the top. It's going to trickle all the way down and it's going to make everybody's experience possible. And that is that idea of possible is actually such an important thing because that's the thing. It gets so easy. I have seen it so often in festivals where people begin seeing the festival producers and their representatives as the thing in their way of producing this the way that they want to do it. And that is flatly not the case. They are the reason you are able to put up this show. Period. End of thought. End of sentence. And you have to treat them that way. And you have to thank them, as you said, Jen, at the end of every rehearsal. As you said, other Jen, <laughs> if you're directing or producing, tell your people you will not tolerate the representatives of the festival being treated badly and tell them that you would like them to be sure to say please and thank you and treat them with respect. Not because that's the way to keep on their good side, but because they are in fact the people that are making it possible for you to do your show. And it's just a very helpful thing Every day when you wake up and you're working on a festival, remember, I would not have a show to go to rehearsal for if it were not for these people producing this festival and treat them like that. I think that's important to think about, too, as an independent artist, because we've kind of been talking mostly in terms of as if it's your piece that you're producing with your team or whatever. But a lot of times what happens is, you know, every summer there's a billion postings for auditions for festival shows. And if you're thinking about auditioning for one, that's something you need to think about, too, about what it's like to be a part of an actor in a, a play that's part of a festival. And just to keep that in mind that not not to say that, oh, I'll have to be you know, a slave to the producers of the festival and or anything like that. But there is something a little different about doing a show in a festival yeah. than doing a show at a regional theater somewhere. And um, hopefully you'd be that kind of actor anyway, regardless of what show you're in. But just to keep in mind that it's especially important for uh, a setting like a festival. Yeah, and it's something that's come up in other discussions, but I just find it so helpful to keep level and together in this business and things is that idea to take responsibility for your own choices. You know, that idea, you decided to become an actor, you decided to become a director, you decided to become a writer, whatever that means in your life. But certainly you decided to enter your show in this festival. You decided to audition for a show that was in this festival. You decided to accept this role. You have made those choices. You should have known ahead of time what you were signing up for. If you were not, you did not do your due diligence. And so just that idea to embrace, oh, gee, we cannot have any choice about where the lights are pointed. Huh, I signed up for a festival where it said there would be a rep plot that you cannot change. Oh, me. <laughs> oh, me. 
<laughs> and then you deal with it because you did that to you. <laughs> and also, and, and this is this goes along with what you said, Kit, but the knowing the rules, knowing your responsibilities, knowing I know for the fringe festival, as an actor, you have you know fifteen minutes to load in and then fifteen minutes uh before, you know, when they open the house before the show starts, that's when you as an actor have the time to get into the role, to get, you know, to do whatever you need to do as an actor to prep for the piece. You know that going in if you've, you know, you know the rules, you know what you've signed up for. So you're not surprised when you get there and you don't have a half hour to just be by yourself and look at the mirror or whatever it is that you do. <laughs> well, and Jenny, the, the show... <laughs> That's what people do, right? <laughs> and Jenny, the show that you just did, you had a relatively extensive makeup preparation that you needed to do. And I know you rented space yourself mm-hmm. near the theater to yeah. be able to prepare because you knew that you were working in a situation yeah, where I you had, had to plan 15 minutes. in advance what I was going to do before each show to, to make sure that I could make that happen. And I think one thing that is important to embrace about the rules of a festival is one of the things that can be sort of challenging about it, I think, especially for people who have been working for a little while, is that a lot of times the rules are aimed at sort of the lowest common denominator, at the people who have never done a show before. And there are festivals like The Fringe is a good example of that you guys are just in, that there are people in that who have worked on Broadway, who have done all of this stuff, and there are people in it who literally have never produced a show before. That's part of the aesthetic and the mission of that festival. And a lot of festivals have that sort of variability. But you just have to be empathetic as an artist or a producer working within the festival that, of course, the producers of the festival at large, need to have rules that will keep even the least experienced person on track with the production. And what I find strange, having both worked in many festivals over my evolving career and having seen people at different career levels working in it, a lot of times it's the people, it's like their first show ever, who they just don't know any better than the fact that this isn't how a show always works, who just sort of follow the rules and get it done. And then there are people who've been doing it for a while who have their stuff so together that they can adapt what they're doing to the rules. The new rules that they need to follow are just something they need to adapt to, and they do it without having to think very hard about it. It's sort of that middle group of people who've been in it for a little while, who feel like they have their way they like to work and don't like being tied down by all these rules because don't they understand that that's not how a play happens, except that it is how a play happens in a festival. And I just think that that thing of if you're finding yourself at home working on a festival and saying, oh, I'm frustrated with these producers, they don't understand what I need to do to do my work, just realize you're falling into that category (laughs) and aspire to the next category which is the people who've been doing it long enough and have their process together enough that they can adapt to doing it in that setting. Because that just very simply is what you have to do. Let's talk a little bit about another group of people who you uh, have to work with in a festival setting that you don't generally have to work in other settings, which is the other groups of artists that are working in the same festival with you. Do you guys have any thoughts about uh, those relationships and the best ways to work with with people? I think it's a good practice to start the same way you do with 
the festival producers, which is, you know, with respect and for their for their product and their place alongside of you and, you know, make sure that you're courteous and that, you know, when you're switching over spaces and that you're not the one who's lagging behind by five minutes and that you're clear and they get the space when they're assigned it. And if there's things that need to be shared, that they're they're taken care of with, you know, respect and not broken and left dirty and that you, yeah, you know, make sure that your space is clean when you, when you leave so that they have the same space that you got that you give to them. That actually reminds me of something that I did not say when we were talking about working with producers, but actually I think is so important, which is when you are producing your own work, not in a festival, you generally either, it's because you have your own theater or more likely probably with the sort of thing we're talking about because you have rented a theater and you've put in a deposit on it and you've been read the riot act about taking care of the theater, which is not something that you usually get done when you are performing in a festival. But you have to really respect the space that you're working in, whether it belongs to the producers or whether they are renting it. That is the single best way to get on their bad side is to not take care of the space, but also is a really great way to get on their good side, which is just to leave it immaculate. To leave it not just as good as it was when you walked in, but actually better. Yeah. And I think the, as far as, you know, handing off of space and any, like, materials that you might be sharing, if it's large props or furniture or anything like that, there's also other things that you need to manage between productions, which is like if there is a not a rep plot, if you have to manage and, and uh, negotiate different light plots, or if you have to negotiate placement of items backstage if you're in the same venue. I mean, this is generally about things that are in the same venue as opposed to things in you know neighboring venues. But you know that to to begin your communications respect respectfully and with like common goals in mind and try to maintain that even if the person on the other end is has less experience is less able to deal with things than you are to try to not make them into an obstacle for yourself but to turn them into an ally so that you have the have the best possible working relationship as the festival continues because you're going to have to continue the relationship and, and I also think just that idea of, I mean, you said don't be the person who's running over. Don't be, but the thing is, don't be the person who's running over. Yeah. That there are rules. You should, if you are due to be out of the space at three when your tech ends and another group comes in, you need to be out of the space at three. Not getting your stuff together. Not you. It is absolutely essential that you not be the person who is not respecting the time of the other people. And candidly, even if the producer of the festival says, it's okay if you run over a few minutes, don't do it. Because this is actually one of those things that this is the situation in the um, interactions with the other um, people in the festival. Again, some of whom may have much less experience or much more experience than you have uh, doing these sorts of things, is this is the place where the rules begin to protect you. That's one of those things. I actually was talking with somebody recently who was in a festival where one of the other 
people doing a show in their venue started talking about wanting to rearrange things in the space. But that's a place where, frankly, you don't need to get into that argument with that person. That's something the producers of the festival will be able to handle for you because there are rules. And that, that that is something that is a great thing to have, that rule book that you may feel like you are penned in by, but it becomes a very easy thing to come back to and say, wait a minute, you're telling me you need to move the location of the spotlight, but it says in the book that this isn't going, that whatever the rule is that made you think you had no choice over moving the spotlight and saying we planned our show around where it was set uh, because we understood that it wouldn't move. And it is incredibly rare that the producer won't then say, you know what, there are two people who want two different things and this person wants a thing that's actually in the rules. We should give it to the person who wants the things in the rules. And I think it's it's really important to be flexible with the other um, participants, but also to be very clear on what your triage order of your needs is so that when you need to go to the, you know, the producers of the festival or the the people at the venue or whatever and say, you know, we planned our show around this thing because of XYZ rule, then, you know, it's the one, it's the one thing you really know that you need to stand up for. And that the rest of the time, there might be a flexible solution that works for everybody. And letting that be your go-to to figure out, okay, how can we all work together to solve this problem together? And then if we need to if we need to involve some additional help to try to make something happen or to mediate something, we hopefully nothing has escalated. Everybody's been trying and putting in good faith effort to make things work. And then you have that rule book and those, you know, festival producers to, to help protect you and work with you. And actually, if you can be keeping an eye out for ways you can actually help the other people, that can be very useful. If you hear, oh, we don't have an X, and you know you have one that you could lend to them for their production, you will have so much more pleasant to re, uh, uh, an interaction with them if you're actually not only not screwing them up, but actively helping them. Yeah, and relatedly, one, one way it was put to us when we were in a festival was the idea of not looking at your other participants as competition. Mm-hmm. Um, which is strange because some festivals literally are competitions. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but just that idea of the better everyone does in the festival, the better the festival is and mm-hmm. the more prestigious your participation in that festival is. So I think that's sometimes a helpful way to think about it. Sometimes one of the things that you can give as a festival producer is time. If you happen to have extra time available and the show ahead of you looks like it might run over, to not throw a fit because they didn't end on time, but to know that you are able to adjust and give them that little run over graciously. But know that you can insist on it if you need it. But if you have the ability to accommodate in time, that is a very precious commodity. And you and it might be something that you offer to the, over, the festival producer to offer to the other producer rather than directly offering. But to say, festival producer, I know that this might be an issue. I could start 10 minutes later. That's totally fine with us. And that would give you also more credit in the eyes of the producing organization. Yeah, just generally, the more you can be part of the solution and not part of the problem, Mm -hmm. because it is something that 
again, the reason for participating in a festival for many, many people in many, many cases is that idea of sharing resources in order to make it possible for everyone to get their work done. And, you know, the same way that, you know, you need to think about this festival producer is the reason I'm able to do my show Along the same lines, the fact that there are five other shows that they have that are going up in the same venue with us is the reason that it is possible for them to produce it. And so ultimately, yes, even if it is, as you were saying, Caitlin, technically a competition festival where there is a prize at the end or something, still the fact of getting things up and happening is something that A, the rules and actually people following them should hopefully take care of 85% of it, but then whatever you can do to help get us the other 15% of the way there is just always appreciated and again, ultimately good for your show too. And something that's been a bit alluded to up until now, but we should actually talk about, about how do you plan your production to be appropriate to be done in a festival setting? Obviously, different festivals have different settings. Um, And so there are different details, but are there general ways that you might want to be thinking about a festival production that might be different than or in addition to the things that you would want to think about in a production that was being done freestanding? I feel like generally, and I feel like this is true for probably almost all festivals, is simplicity is your friend. I feel like, especially with festivals, you get a certain amount of tech time, you get a certain amount of load-in time, you get all of these kind of rules about time. And I feel like to be able to go in and manage your time and not have to be going through 100 cues in 45 minutes to know what you need to do the production, but to to know what you need to do the production and to keep it simple is generally something that people learn over the course of their festival careers. Mm -hmm. So if you start early, simple, you're ahead of the game. Yeah, I think primarily what makes a festival production successful is simplicity in design. And what you're talking about with the time and the cues and the tech, doing three cues really well instead of 50 cues is, you know, you, you use the resources you have to best advantage. And since you won't have time to iron out problems with design elements in the space, having very few design elements will help you do them really successfully. And I think one of the general things that that leads to is that you focus on the performances and the writing and the directing and the other things become more simpler than you might if you were producing something as a standalone piece where you have more room to work the design elements out. But because you have to essentially vacate every time things that are collapsible or small, you know, tend to be more successful in a a festival venue and that might mean not having them or doing something design-wise that eliminates elements that makes the focus more on the piece and the performance than on a grand design. And I think for me, the really helpful rule of thumb that, that I've sort of come around to myself is that idea that your festival production 
should look great in the rehearsal room. That if all of a sudden they announced, sorry, the theater burned down, people are still coming, but it's going to be in a rehearsal room, that you would still be pretty happy with what you've put together. And especially if you have any design bells and whistles, because there are some shows that need design things, but they should be things that will work in the rehearsal room and not just in the theater. I mean, I know you guys had slides in uh, your show that you spent a lot of time on really honing and coming up with just what you, but you didn't need to be in the, in the space to do it. That was something you could do from midnight until three in the morning, working things out to, to make that happen and be sure they would look like what you wanted them to look like. Or there are things like props that you can build. There are things like that that you can do where your design bells and whistles are portable ones that can work in your rehearsals in the rehearsal room the exact same way that they will work in the theater. And not to be, if you ever find yourself saying to someone, oh, this part will look great when it's got the right light on it, that is not something that is going to be helpful to have in a festival situation. Because again, you have a limited amount of time for tech, which we should and will momentarily talk about how to handle the short techs that you get in a, in a festival. But things can go wrong in those techs. And you should be doing, you should be planning your show in such a way that it could be done with half the tech time that you have. And that question that you need to ask yourself always is, this is great, can it be done in the amount of time we have? Can it be done in half of the amount of time that we have? And something that I think can be a very helpful thing to plan for is to say, to have plans A, B, and C. Plan A is this show's gonna work great if literally we're able to turn the lights up at the beginning, at the beginning and turn the lights off at the end. A festival show should be able to work like that uh, with the things that you have in a rehearsal room. But then, and we'll talk about this when we get to the tech, but you'll be able to set up sort of a layered approach to the tech where you get your essentials done and then your next two essentials done and then your next two essentials done rather than having a play that needs you to hit every single moment in the play correct technically with things that you don't have in the rehearsal room in order for your play to work. And I think something that's important to remember about simplicity is that simplicity doesn't necessarily mean boring or undesigned or uncreative. I mean, often it's the opposite. Often mm -hmm. the restrictions and limitations you have in a festival setting force you to be more creative about your design. And I think that creates a lot of really interesting and surprising choices. So just because we're saying simplicity is your friend doesn't mean bare stage, lights up, lights down. <laughs> and it also is something that actually, when you have design limitations, it becomes all the more important to be sure that things are designed really well and are designed really smart. And it was actually something that we actually, all of us, recently worked. We had a an evening of one-act plays that featured our summer apprentice company that we did as part of a larger festival. So it was sort of like a mini quasi-festival within a larger festival. But it was one of the things that uh, Will Clark, uh, who's uh, often with us but isn't today, and I talked about, about his play, which took place on a farm. 
And he had a real back and forth about he thought he could probably get some hay bales to be set pieces on the set. But really that pull back and forth between is having hay bales as the things that people sit on versus black cubes that people sit on that stand in for the hay bales, that there really is that question. I think we came around to and I think was right that it actually was more aesthetically cohesive to let it be a black cube the same way that there was a black bench and a, you know, and, and, and black curtains and to let that sort of be a design choice rather than do as much as you can with limited resources. It's that idea of embracing the limited resources and making them work for you, rather than trying to do a big show little, but to do a little show really well. And my first reaction to the hay bales as a producer was, there will be little bits of hay on every every bit of the stage for every play of the night. So that hay will expand into everybody else's space. So it's like, you can't, and there are lots of things that do that. Glitter, blood, you know, there are things that you think of as being necessary for your play that you have to, if you must have them, if they're allowed in your venue, you have to also have the plan of how to clean those things up even sometimes within the show that has to be worked into the design that if you need a big splash of blood it has to be able to lift up immediately and completely from the from the stage from the cube that it splashed onto and you have to be able to collect everything that you've left and so you should think about that in designing those kinds of elements of what is the after effect of this element that I need to deal with? And also, I think you need to think about the definition of the term absolutely necessary for your play. Mm -hmm. um, because it is something that there are things that would be great in a different kind of production. And I think you just always really need to assess when you're talking about, ooh, this is going to be really tough to do in the, in the context of a festival. Or the rules say I can't do it, but it's absolutely necessary to my play usually there is, almost always, there is another solution to the problem. And if you are saying this is absolutely essential, there is no other way, it is probably a sign of your limitation of being able to think of options than it is the fact that the festival won't let you spray blood all over the wall. Or, or it's also possible that that was something, if it truly is that essential to your show, you may not have wanted to put this show into a festival in the first place. So that's also the kind of thing to be thinking about before you even apply. And to think about solutions. The, the show that I just um, worked on, there was a moment in the play where we realized, and we realized this during tech, um, that my character gets uh, food kind of on the floor, all over the floor. And to prevent that from continuing to happen, we worked in a bit in tech where um, where the other actress kind of wipes my hands and wipes me down, like she had wipes in her costume to kind of prevent me from making further mess. So they built it into, into the production where it could be picked up easily and not become a disaster for the venue. What about uh, the challenges that are specific to the rehearsal process when you are uh, in a festival? In a, in a festival where there are multiple venues, you often find out that you've been accepted to the festival well before you know what 
what space you're going to be working in. And so you might have your actors in place. You might have um, everything ready to go and be working in rehearsal, but not yet know what configuration you, your, your stage is going to be in. Um, and that happened to us this um, in, in this festival we just did, that we got our information about our venue pretty early on, but we found out the seating configuration later in the process and ended up um, needing to be flexible in rehearsal and change our staging while we were already well into the process of putting the show together to make sure that we were accommodating this, the seating and the visibility in the venue. And that's something to be aware of with some venues is that when they uh, sell out of a show, they may add extra rows of seats and you need to stage for the possibility that there will be extra seats in front of what is like the built-in seats. So just to be aware that even if you are told that the seats are this, to ask if any additional seating might be added if it's standing room only or if like, there, you know, just what, what the visibility, what the sight lines will be for every person, every possible seat in the house so that you can stage for that. And it also impacts any choreography or any fighting that you might have and potentially design as well. But the way that you're working in rehearsal to maintain that flexibility beyond what you already know, beyond the information you already have, to even be able to choreograph something that can be relocated on the stage when you get there and realize it's, it's no longer lit there or that that extra row of seats will get in the way and will make it unsafe. So, you know, to, to be able to stage the show and prepare in rehearsal and prepare the actors in rehearsal as well to be ready to have that level of flexibility. Yeah. And I also think it's that idea of, again, it, so much about the challenge of working in a festival comes down to the tech, which we'll get to momentarily. But, but I think like that idea of part of it is that you really do need to have in your rehearsals in a lot of situations, there is no time for once we get in the space, we'll figure this out which does happen in a lot of other productions where you're like, this is a thing, we're going to leave it a little loose for right now. Once we get in the space and see what the sight lines are, we'll set it. But there is, in, I have never known a festival ever that has enough time for that. So you really do need to, instead of saying, we don't know what this will be, you need to build in time to rehearse. This is what the plan is. This is what plan B is. And this is what plan C is. So that instead of, oh, wait, let's see what will happen. We'll get in there. We know what we're planning to do. It doesn't work. Guys, we're going to plan C. That's what's going to work in this space. And just that idea that a big part of working in a festival, and it goes back to that idea of what I said, of you want whatever bells and whistles design-wise you have to be things that can work in the rehearsal room, that you're sort of semi-teching over your rehearsal process when you're preparing for a festival. And that's just something you need to be prepared to do. And you also really need to be prepared. I was talking to somebody earlier today who had just um, had a very difficult tech for a show they did in a festival, and they said the reason was they'd never been able to get a run-in before they went into tech. Which, I have worked on shows at, you know, very professional venues where things have happened and that has happened. That cannot happen in a festival setting because you don't have any time for people not knowing where they're standing, for people not knowing that they don't have time for the costume change, 
all of that stuff, you really need to structure your 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 rehearsal schedule so that there's enough fat on it to be able to do a lot of that sort of technical consideration work because it really is i mean we've we've done a whole series of episodes about the stages of rehearsal and basically saying they're about 20 percent 20 percent 20 percent 20 percent with 20 percent the last 20 percent being tech but in in a uh festival setting it really is the you have like yeah, five, maybe three percent of your time is tech, which means you need to move some of that tech rehearsal work into your pre-tech rehearsal time. So that idea of saying, oh, we've got enough time to rehearse this show, take a really hard look at it and be sure that you have enough time to rehearse that show if you really need to have it effectively ready to go at the end of that rehearsal time you have booked. And one of the things you were saying about option A, B, and C just put me in mind of having things prefabricated. That it's like essentially you have a performance prefabricated and you just choose the module you want that fits with the space. And the same thing can be true of all the design elements, all your production choices is that you have options A, B, and C and you've tried them and everyone knows what they are. Yeah. So it's like, okay, this is the set piece we're thinking of. If this doesn't work, we can do this. If it's, you know, if this costume doesn't look right, we can have this costume. So that, and if you've worked through those things in the pre-tech tech, then, then you'll have, you'll be ready to act on them once you get into the venue space. Yeah, and to actually be working with as many of your design elements as possible in the rehearsal room. Like, you don't want your tech to be the first time people are in their costumes. Mm -hmm. You know, you want people to have rehearsed in their costume, in the rehearsal room, so that you can solve those problems of, oh, I can't reach with the jacket that I've got. That stuff that needs to, that in many other settings is something you could deal with in tech. Candidly, a lot of tech in a lot of other situations is a lot of sit around and wait. Is a lot of, well, we're, you know, taking 45 minutes to get this lighting cue just right. I've got time to have the costume designer come up and take a look at this thing that's going on. But in a lot of festival situations, 45 minutes is what you've got. And in other situations, you can literally spend 45 minutes on one queue. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do know, again, I just spoke with somebody who said they had a very difficult uh, tech process and they were talking about the fact because they had 300 queues in their show. And they had three hours of tech time. I there is no one in the world who can tech 300 cues in three hours. And, you know, you just need to be prepared uh, going in. So we actually should move to, and we've sort of, I think in the last 15 minutes or so of the discussion, been sort of anxiously moving our way towards tech because it really is the Rubicon, or for a lot of, of shows, the Waterloo um, <laughs> that they meet because it is something, again, that... You have generally in a uh, festival setting an incredibly small time and especially proportionally to what it normally is to be in the space with the lights, with the sound, with the actual space. And generally it will be something between one and three hours that you and your team get to be in the theater before you actually put a show on. And a lot of times it's the first time your production team, your cast, your director has even seen the space. 
So one thing that I just think is worth reiterating before we get into tech um, and best practices for tech is that idea that you want to be planning your production at every step of the way around the fact that you only have the amount of tech time that you have, that you want to keep it simple because without exception, always, your show will go better and look better and run better with five well-executed cues than it will with 40 cues that never happen at quite the right time or the same time because you haven't had the time to work them. So that idea of we need to figure out the way to rehearse 40 cues in one hour because that's what will make the show look great is incorrect. You know, that idea of really being sure that your show depends only on the amount that you can very comfortably get done technically in that amount of time. Assuming you have done that, let's talk about best practices for tech. Well, I'll also say, kind of going off of that, that uh, especially for The Fringe, which uh, we a couple of us just finished with, they give you clearly what needs to happen in that time as well. You must get a run of the show in. You're going to have to be timed loading in and loading out. There's going to be these different things that cut into the tech time that you need to account for. So really your tech time ends up being, you know, whatever it is, a half hour of the three hours or whatever it is that you're allotted. So you, you need to have a plan for, for that, knowing all of the different pieces that are going into it. And there are usually certain elements of your tech that are easier to prepare for in advance than others. Like, for example, m most, most venues run their sound. You can run it off of a computer or an iPod or something like that. That's a very easy thing to practice in advance, as opposed to the lighting, which likely it's the first time your designer is getting a chance to get at that light board is during your tech. So it's not just that you're doing a cue to cue with the light cues you've established. It's that your lighting designer is building those light cues in the time you have in tech in your, in your venue. So I think troubleshooting which tech elements you can refine as much as possible before you're actually in the space for tech and which elements you actually need to devote that time to is really important too. And there are things, um, you know, now with the advent of technology, that there are things like sound cues and things like that, that you can really build at home. And you can, you know, really work out. And, and it's one of those things that in most settings, you would want to be able to work together with the sound and the light to set the timing of the sound to the light. Wait a minute, can we make the car running a little bit longer? But I think your best bet when you're talking about a festival is really make your choice of this is the sound cue. When it comes time, they're going to hit go, and then it's going to fade up, and the thing's going to happen, and the next thing happens, and then another thing happens, and it fades down, and it's one 24-second long cue that nobody's adjusting. The level adjustments are all in there. And then the lighting designer can plan the timing of their lighting around that cue rather than trying to balance it too. But that's also something that also with the advent of technology, you can send that MP3 to the lighting designer ahead of time and say, this is what the cue is going to be. You need to time the lights. And if they, because they too need to deal with the fact that, oh, I was thinking about it being a five-step evolution of the look, but 
it's going to have to be a three-step evolution of the look with the, with the amount of time I have. And um, again, you're much better off with a well-executed three-step evolution to the look that goes well along with the sound than not ever having enough time to work out what it actually is. And this is something that might help you to make best use of your time and make efficient use of your time is to have a team going in with experience. If you are a first-time producer and you've never hired a light person, maybe the festival might have somebody who's familiar with that board, who knows all the little quirks of it and all the lights already, and you might be best served hiring that person to be your light board op rather than asking someone to do it for free who's never done it before. And the same with all of your production team. Having those people prepped and ready and experienced with festival work is better than using the friends that you have available. There is actually something just, it's a little thing that is not always possible. But I have found that if you do have a situation where you're doing several shows in one night or even even if, if they're not all in one night, to have the same lighting designer um, is really helpful because then they can negotiate with themselves over where the special goes and things like that. <laughs> it, but it, it also is just something that it is helpful in the occasions where it's possible to have someone, whether it's the lighting designer or someone else, but someone who is common to the productions. Again, it's not always helpful, but it's amazing how much easier it makes negotiating the things you need to negotiate. And I think something that you said, Jen, um, I think making sure that the, the team that you bring in is really has a really strong understanding of how that tech day is going to have to function as well. Um, so that not only can everybody be as well prepared in advance as they possibly can, but to know the difference of what you should use that precious time you have to solve. That, that you know, walking into this space if there is a problem with a sound cue or even a sound level, that may be something that you can adjust on the computer after you leave the space. But if there's a costume concern, that's something that's not going to be solved in, in that you know, 20 minute period of tech. But the only time you're going to get your hands on the light board is going to be while you're in that room. So triaging what, what can be um, executed and what can be solved in the amount of time that you have in the room and making sure that the whole team knows what that is. Yes. And I, I think that actually is so important that everyone knows the plan, that it's not just the lighting person, the director have talked and the sound person, the director, but that really to actually have a meeting that includes everyone who will be in that room and really have a game plan and divide and conquer that people need to know we're going to go in the space. These two people are going to go and start writing the cues. You guys go and set up the, the screen while the other people are bringing in the, the props. I'm, you know, And really make sure everybody knows exactly what they're doing, that the actors know, because it is something that's very, very common to a festival, is that they are effectively the crew for their show. Actors in a festival generally do not go and sit in their dressing room and prepare while it's being set up. In most in most festivals, again, you get a, a window of 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes that you're allowed to be in the space before the show starts. And, um, you know, you need all of your team ready to execute it. I also really recommend putting together a tech schedule. Even if you only have an hour. But if you've really planned it out and know... 
by 10 after one, this should be done. By 20 after one, this should be done. By, you know, from this time to this time, you two are going to be doing this while we're doing that. Hopefully you will abide by it, but minimally it will be forcing you to be continually assessing where you are. And, you know, so that you're going like, okay, we're not done with the stuff we should have done by now. What are we going to have to lose? Where can we pick up the time? And it's just, again, that idea of it is possible to get three hours of tech work done in one hour if you have a really good plan. It is possible to get 10 minutes of tech work done in one hour if you don't. And something you said earlier, Kid, about um, having layers to your your uh, design layers to your decisions um, and, and priorities really within that to say, okay, the first most important thing is this. And then if we have time, we this. And then if we have time, we put the cherry on top. And to say that, um, you know, with, with that schedule to be able to assess it in light of those priorities and say, okay, well, you know what, we're, we're 10 minutes over, but the thing we're spending the time on right now is the most essential thing. So those 10 minutes need to need to be spent here and we'll need to lose something from the later part of the schedule to accommodate that. And within that, a lot of people hope to be able to do some sort of run during a tech. So you can kind of see how everything works together. And I know at the fringe it's required, but if it's not required and you're running out of time to have a priority of moments, whether they be safety moments in the show, moments with, you know, transitions or something like that, a priority list, um, of things to hit uh, within the show because very rarely do you get a chance to actually get a full run in. Well, that hit list is so important. And and again, you know, to really walk in knowing these are the things that need to happen. And to be clear about, you know, even planning it ahead of time, but when you're talking about like the projections that you guys are using, that you want to be using your time in tech to set the placement of the projections because that's something you need to be in the space to do. You don't need to be in the space to set the timing. The timing you can do earlier. And that idea of knowing that, and also I do think it's something that I started doing after doing festivals for a while, but I think it's so important to have that production meeting with every person, including the actors, so that everybody knows this is the plan, these are the priorities, this is what we need to be sure to hit, this is how we're doing this, and give other people the opportunity to say, wait a minute, I really need to be sure that I have the chance to do X or Y. And then you can figure out where it can fit into the schedule. Or maybe you can figure out and say, actually, we do not have time to do that in tech, but this is a way that we can solve that problem. And I just also think something that's so important and this I feel like should go without saying by the time we're here, but I think is worth saying, is that you want to be using your time in tech to confirm your suspicions and not to figure out problems. You know, that that idea that it's, this is what we're planning to do in this moment. We've talked about what the lighting cue should be. And now we're going to look at the thing we think it should be instead of the director seeing the idea of the lighting cue for the first time. And again, that idea of having backup plans. Because the thing is, you can totally screw your show if you don't get all the way through teching it. And that's one of those things. Once you're out of the space, you're out of the space. There are certain things you can do, like fixing the level, fixing the, an edit of a sound cue. That's actually something you can take a note on and say, we're gonna do it when we leave the space. But, you know, 
you just you cannot go back in to retech lighting looks once your tech time is over. And so that idea of even though it feels like I mean, it's ironic. We only get an hour of tech. Why are we spending so much time planning tech? Well, it's because you only get an hour of tech. And that idea of any moment that you don't feel really certain is going to work the way you think it's going to work in the space, you want to have at least one backup plan. So you're not, again, saying, oh, that doesn't work. What can we do? But we can say, that doesn't work. Let's go with the other option we talked about before. And to go in with the expectation that things are going to run long, something is going to happen. There's going to be a challenge or an obstacle that comes up that you were not expecting. So the more that you're prepared for the day, the better you're going to be able to handle those situations. Mm. And to be able to, uh, it happens very rarely, but maybe something happens more quickly than you expected to know what happens when you finish early. Like that never happens. But like if you were really efficient, something, you had to jettison something. And so suddenly we're not having that whole set of cues happening. So now we have 10 minutes. What can we do in that 10 minutes that's useful to us now that we have it? Like, let's run something again because that was the trouble thing. So like having the having the ability to, once you, if you have to lose something and you gain some time to be able to know what to do with that time that you gained. And you want to plan to be ahead. Mm -hmm. I actually have a very vivid memory and you work with me on this show and it was, I'd been doing festivals for five or so years at this point and sort of had my rhythms down, but we were working on a show in a festival, an evening of one acts. And there was a show that was right before us. There was this girl who was very nice girl, but it was the first show she was ever directing in New York. And she had all of these cues and furniture moves and she was, and, and the, she was way behind on her tech time and the producer of the festival was trying to hurry her along and she was getting very upset about the fact that her vision of the show was not going to work if she couldn't work it through. And I said to the producer, I said, I, I, I'll pick us up time. Let her finish this thing. And so she had an hour and ran an hour and 45 minutes. We were in the hour behind her and we finished on time for ours. But it was not because magic. It was because... It was a festival. We worked really hard on making sure the story was awesome with the acting and the directing and the writing. And we had a nice sound cue to start, brought the lights up, let them do the show. Nice sound cue, brought the lights out. And that's a thing that in a different setting, if I had a bunch more tech time, I'd have done much more technically with it. But I will also say, and I don't want to say it, but I will... I am fairly confident in terms of those two shows in that evening, which one went over better. I feel pretty confident that it was the one that was planned to be done in a festival setting. Yes. And I think there's there's something also to the, as we were talking about earlier, about making sure that you've gotten runs in before you get into tech and making sure that the planning going into tech is um, is such that you can take best advantage of the time while you're in the room. But I think also recognizing in a, in a non-festival setting, that, that time that is spent programming the light cues and setting the lights on stage and making sure that the actors are in that space is not the last time you usually encounter the venue before you open the show. Mm -hmm. And so also realizing that in a festival, your tech rehearsal, though it is your first, last, and only chance to be in the venue before you have an audience, it is not your last rehearsal. It is not the last encounter with the tech. And so that there are things that you can do once you have gotten into the room, once you have 
put everything together, once you have built the light cues, to continue your rehearsal process, taking all of that tech into consideration mm. um, between whenever your tech is and your opening performance is. Yeah, and actually that's the sort of thing that there's a lot of times where you'll figure out, oh, in this space, I actually is a sightline problem there. Good. Take a note. Now that I know what the sight line is, I can fix it outside of this tech room mm -hmm. and not fall into the trap of, oh, wait a minute. Now that I can see it, let me fix it. Take in the information you need, then take it out of the room to fix. Um, and I think that goes back to working with your designers and your collaborators, making sure everybody knows what they can fix in the room and what they should be taking a note on so that, you know, all of those things that can be addressed outside of that you know, tight tech time um, can be. Um, and I think it's also really important in terms of the people you're dealing with at the venue and the, you know, the whole team of people that you're, you're working with to, to, you know, be as, make sure that everybody understands exactly what the goals are for the time, but also really to be as positive and flexible and um, as good a person to work with as you possibly can be because this is an incredibly tight timeline it's incredibly stressful and that just can't be the the tone of your work with your own team and it can't be the tone of your work within the festival you need to be somebody that the festival when you walk out of your tech not only have you picked up those, you know, the extra time that the people before you might have, have lost or whatever, but you're somebody that they want to have come back into the room, that they feel like you've, you've been somebody who's professional and ready to do your job and pleasant even when things are going wrong. And I think it's, that's so important and not just for, although also for, but not just for your relationship with the festival, but also because you don't have time to be anything other than together and efficient, that um, you need to make the most out of every single moment that you have. And I was talking uh, yesterday to someone who uh, was just in a festival. I'm realizing how many people I know who are in festivals. It's uh, this August is festival month in New York City, but um, that they had this big musical that they were rehearsing when they'd been to the venue to see it ahead of time. And the, what they were told to be the case is the lighting board was out in the audience for tech. But then when they got there for their tech, because the festival had begun, they had installed the lighting board backstage and couldn't move it. So the lighting designer couldn't be at the console, which was what the plan was. So they didn't have somebody to be at the console and also didn't have headsets so that they could communicate with the console backstage. They were momentarily very upset that they had not been told this was the case, but, which seems to be the right thing, very rapidly got on getting somebody to get behind the light board and set up a Skype conversation between the house and the lighting board so that they could figure out how to deal with that. And it's just one of those things that still they had a very, very tight time. A, because talking to them, I think their show was, was probably overtech. But two, they lost 20 minutes trying to figure out how to set up a communique. And there was a show starting in the theater less than an hour after their tech. So... Again, that idea of things can and will go wrong, but that idea of I have seen situations in festivals where that happens and the person burns their time being upset about it and complaining and calling the producer and asking why they weren't told. And it's just one of those things that you've just got to be 
super prepared with your plan, your backup plan, your backup plan to that backup plan, and a total preparation to roll with it if something happens that screws up any and all of those plans. You can be angry about it later. But when you're actually in that room for your allotted time, you've just got to make whatever is happening work for you. Before we wrap up, now that we've talked about the great Waterloo of uh, <laughs> shows uh, in a festival setting, um, what about the specific challenges of performing in a festival? Well, something I already mentioned is is knowing the kind of prep time that you have to, to get into your role. Um, but also, especially with festivals, there's different times. And, it, you know, usually you do a show where it falls over a weekend or you're doing eight performances in a week and it's very, you know, regulated. And, and sometimes with festivals, you're doing one on a weekday afternoon and then you don't do it for another week and it's, you know, in the middle of the night. And it's being flexible and knowing... And again, it goes back to like knowing as an actor what you're signing up for. If that's something that scares you or you're not prepared for, don't sign up to be part of that festival. Don't audition for it. Don't, don't put yourself in that position. And I think realizing that you have to be able to be flexible in, in a lot of those ways and in what you're talking about, a performance schedule, being sure that you can uh, do your work in between performances to make sure that you don't drop the ball. You've got to be ready to just jump in with that 15 minutes notice and, and do all your homework there and be willing to be a team player um, to help set up the set if you need to and be as as quick and available to the production as you can be to, you know, be a part of the whole team and make it go. And I think as a director and a producer, just to be aware of some of those complicating factors, if you do have a uh, a performance schedule that ends up with a weak gap between two performances, it might make sense to schedule a, a brush-up run-through or at least a line-through or something midway through the week. Um, you know, and, and, and just to ask if there are things that you can be doing to help make the actors' jobs uh, in performance uh, better for them. Something else that we uh, did talk about a bit during our um, Producing Your Own Work podcast um, was about fundraising and marketing for your shows. Um, I don't want to rehash that entire topic because there's an interesting discussion, on, I think, on that episode. But um, do you guys have thoughts about uh, issues of marketing and fundraising that are specific to a festival setting? Well, I think a lot of it um, relates to what your goals are for the festival run. But if your goals for that run are to get reviews or to get, a, you know, fill the house, I think... A big thing that is really important to remember is that most often the marketing for the festival itself is not going to be the marketing for your show. Usually a festival will have its own marketing. They will publicize the festival. And often your show will be listed in that publicity. But if you, it's really your responsibility to hustle to get your show its own marketing. Whether that's you do it yourself or you hire a publicist to do it for you. In almost every festival situation, you are going to be the one responsible for marketing your own show. And usually, if you really want to fill the house and get reviewers, it's not enough to rely on the festival publicity. You'll end up, you know, a lot of times there's 200 shows that people have to choose from in that festival to go to, and you'll end up with eight people in the house. Not that there's anything wrong with performing for eight people, but if that's not your goal for the production, it's on you. 
And it also, an additional challenge along those lines too, gets actually back to what we were talking about, the schedule. And that idea that it is something that you need to find a way in your marketing to educate your potential audience to the fact that some of your performances are at a two in the afternoon on a Friday and others are at 8.45 at night, if that's the case with the festival that you're in, which it is for, for many large multi-venue festivals, which is just something that you can't take for granted that the audience won't be thinking, oh, I'm going to the show on Monday. I guess it starts at eight when shows start. And I think there's something to keep in mind, too, as you're marketing your own show, even within the marketing of the of the festival, that, you know, what we were talking about, about your application, you know your show, you you can provide the language, the artwork, you know, to to brand your show and sell your show, even within the, you know, the the larger festival press that might go out, but to, to really take advantage of um, what Kit was talking about with the application, you know, the tone of your show, put, put all of those materials together. And even if you are hiring a press agent or, you know, taking advantage of the festival um, opportunities for, for marketing, that you're the best advocate for your show and you can provide the best materials for that. And that it really is, definitely on you, even if you're paying other people to help you with it. And there also is just the extent to which the festival does its marketing. You want to be very sure to give them exactly the materials that they ask for. Because there are a lot of times the festivals will put up a little thing about each show on their website or will put together a booklet or a postcard that's got little pictures from each of the show, whatever it is. But you just want to be fair to them if they say we need something that's X number of pixels by Y number of pixels at this resolution. Give them the thing that they are asking for because there is a reason that they are asking for you for it that way. And I think in regards to being in a large festival, you can look for ways to make your show stand out. Because if if there are hundreds of shows, they all have a postcard. Like, think about, like, the context that you are marketing in and try to distinguish yourself from other shows in order to make people aware of you. That your show is the show with this with this person working on it. Oh, I heard that uh, interview, or I saw that on the internet, and oh, um, this. Oh, look at that postcard. It's white, and everyone else has got black postcards. Like that. Like think of the ways that you can be different but true to the voice of your show and true to the voice of the festival which i think is important because you know that there are people a lot of times when people are going to the festivals are people who know people who are in the shows mm -hmm. as is the case with a lot of 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 shows but also there are people who come into new york every august for the fringe festival for example or for the new york musical theater festival or there's again there's there's like uh environmental themed festivals and uh, gay themed festivals and women's themed festivals. There are all these themed festivals that you want to make sure that the materials that you have that are advertising will speak to the people who are singling out that festival as a place where they are looking for uh, something to see. And another opportunity of, of marketing within a festival is, is working with those other participants who we've already said are not, not our competition, but sometimes could be 
our collaborators and, you know, in particular in a festival that has multiple themes or isn't, you know, particularly focused toward one theme to find the people who have a similar kind of a show who might want to have some crossover with the audiences or, you know, work together with, with everyone else, take advantage of the fact that, that you might be able to market to their audiences as well and do the same for them. And I think in terms of fundraising, there actually are a couple of potential benefits for raising funds for your show. One of the things is that you don't have to raise as much funds in order to do a show if you're doing it in a festival, that there are some of the costs that are already being covered. There also is a certain prestige to the fact that your show has been accepted to the festival. That gets a little bit dangerous insofar as you're committing to do a show in a festival before you've raised all the money that you need to do it yourself. But there is something as you're going to friends and family and other people to say, guess what? 800 people submitted to this festival and they chose mine as one of the 40 shows that's going to be in the festival. We need to help raise money to do it. All of a sudden, they feel like they're investing in something that is already having some success. And additionally, it's something that's sort of a truism of fundraising, which is people are much more ready to give to something specific that they can understand than to something more amorphous. That rather than just saying, can you give to my show? If you're able to say, we got in this festival, the festival producers are so great, they've secured this fantastic venue for us that we don't have to pay for. They're doing all the advertising for it that we don't have to pay for. But we do need to pay for the costumes and for rehearsal space. And that's going to cost X amount of money. Can you help us to get there? Again, it becomes a tangible thing that people feel like they are getting on board something that's already moving along and that they can contribute in a way that they can understand. And the other thing, we, we've, you know, we all live in New York and we've talked a lot about the many, many festivals that are in New York, but a lot of festivals draw productions from around the world and so often working in a festival requires travel and housing and to raise money for that is very similar to what you were saying Kit that that's something tangible that people want to support to say we've done the show we've you know we've we've got the support of the festival and in the venue and so forth but now what we need is rehearsal space in our hometown and plane tickets to go and take advantage of this opportunity and that's a that's a pretty specific thing to be able to raise money for around working in a festival. That's yeah. something that's really exciting people for people to give to 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 give you this opportunity to to bring something from where they are to some larger audience. And I think that's you know the point of being in a festival is to get your work seen in a way that you might not have been able to do before and that they have given you this opportunity to expand the the people who will be able to see that piece. And so I think letting people in on your reasons for being in the festival is another reason for them to want to support you financially. And I think that's critical to the whole the whole point of, of applying to be in a festival in the first place, that this really is a chance to take your work and uh, Get it, get it to an audience that you wouldn't necessarily have been able to find on your own. And that, you know, to keep in mind that getting to work in this situation is an opportunity. And, you know, the work you do in festivals takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of hard work and it takes, you know, 
it's a unique process, but if you put all of that time and that planning into it, it can be a really successful way to move your work to the next level. I think that's a good place to wrap up. Thanks so much for joining us for season five of the Cry Havoc podcast. We'll be back again with more episodes on the art and craft of being a working theater artist in New York City next season. Thanks so much to Jenny Gear, whose gift made this episode of the podcast possible. If you'd like to adopt a future episode of the podcast, you can visit www.cryhavoccompany.org support to learn how. If you have any thoughts, questions, or comments, please send them to us at podcast at cryhavoccompany.org, or you can tweet them to us at cryhavocnyc. We have received a number of questions from listeners that are too specific to focus an entire episode on, but we'll be doing a listener questions episode early next season. If you'd like to learn more about the Cry Havoc Company, our public events, our educational programs, our free early career seminars, and how you can support the work of the company, including this podcast, please go to www.cryhavoccompany.org. You can find us on Facebook as the Cry Havoc Company, and you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. While you're there, please write us a review and give us a rating. It helps other people find the podcast. So for myself, Jen, Jenny, Caitlin, and Jen, and everyone at the Cry Have a Company, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Have a Company at cryhaveacompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhaveacompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.